Welcome to the NS North Podcast. I'm Phil Kaskran, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Dan Byers. How are you, Dan? I'm really good, man. How are you? I'm I'm good, but I'm a bit stressed out. So <laughs> <laughs> we're about two weeks out from NS North as we're recording this, but for this episode, final episode of the 2015 season, we have speaker Rob Ricks joining us. How are you, Rob? I'm doing very well, thank you, Philippe. I'm glad to hear that because uh, we are um, we are getting so close to the date and we're so glad that you're with us. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where you're from? Absolutely. Um, I'm from London, Ontario. Uh, I work at GitHub um, and I, I, I don't know what to say beyond that. <laughs> How did you actually get uh, your whole start in this industry, uh, Rob? That is kind of a long story, but uh, my dad had Macs kicking around all the time when I was growing up, and um, one day I, I heard him over saying, or overheard him saying something to a, a colleague about something to do with graphics, and I, I don't to this day remember what it was, but the word really interested me, and uh, he was at the time showing his colleague HyperCard. So I started messing around with HyperCard after that and then learned that you could add buttons to it and then finally learned that you could make the buttons do things. And uh, from there, the sky was the limit, it seemed. I just continued um, messing around with HyperCard and then after that with Real Basic and after that with C and C++ uh, until there wasn't uh, anything I, I couldn't do. So that's quite a jump from HyperCard to C and C++, I must say. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to claim it was uh, particularly fun or easy. <laughs> and what what age was that? Oh, um, HyperCard was something like seven years old, and C C plus plus closer to sixteen, fifteen, fifteen. You you may not know because you haven't heard listened to her podcast, but uh, um, uh, Ashley Nelson Hornstein has also also had a. C++ story about being around 12, 13 years old. So I, you guys have a lot in common. <laughs> it's a good age to learn C++ at because you, you don't really understand how terrible it is at that point. <laughs> no preconceptions. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, like, since you weren't introduced to C and C++ from like an academic standpoint, a very different ex experience, I guess. Um, like what, what would have been like some of your early projects that you would have tackled way back when? Uh, I remember in high school, I was attempting to make a sprite drawing library with C++. I had sort of a, a framework development bent even back then. Um, and I, I was trying to, to make this sprite library so I could make my own little games. To this day, I have made many, many tools for making games I have yet to actually make a game. Oh, so you're just building it up, <laughs> the, the repertoire. Yeah, or, much. or or he's yak shaving. <laughs> yeah, very much that, absolutely that. <laughs> In the time honored tradition of uh, of yaks and shaving. So did did, did you bother going to to university for computer science, or like what was the next step with that after high school? Uh, the after high school, um, I went pretty much straight into the workforce. I I had this ridiculous idea when I was a teenager that I wanted to be an artist, and the closest I could find to that that employed was graphic design. Um, so I was doing graphic design and web design at a couple of print shops in rural Ontario. And, you know, I was okay at it. I wasn't spectacular. I wasn't even particularly great. But it was like, 
you know, it was paying the bills, but I just found that I absolutely hate doing that work <laughs> so much. Um, but fortunately, these, these shops also did some web design, and that got me doing PHP programming, which, you know, I knew how to do, and JavaScript, and then from there into Ruby and various other things. And uh, from there, it wasn't too long before I was actually employed in the Mac industry uh, doing technical support and manual and automated QA. Ooh, wow. It was that in the, uh, like, is that um, in the Toronto area, I guess, or Lon London area? Is that? Oh, no. Um, every job I've ever had in this industry has been remote. Oh, really? Yeah. Remote oh. and through U.S. companies. So it's been kind of a, a, a boon. I've uh, oh, been fortunate oh. enough to to find, yeah, four jobs running now. Huh. And and so what uh, led you to getting your hand dirty with uh, Objective C then? Uh, I'd been programming in Objective C since the OS X public beta. Um, actually, slightly before our copy of it arrived, um, I'd been writing a bunch of code out in the text editor and I think BB Edit Lite. Um, on OS 9, and of course, I didn't have a compiler, so of course, once I had a compiler, none of it compiled. But you were writing code, is what you were saying. It's like prose. But, but I, was, I, was writing, I was writing code. I was reading Objective-C.pdf over and over again until finally some, <laughs> some of it started to make a bit of sense. Um, and yeah, um, being able to actually apply that in my day job was kind of a, kind of a neat change. Also, so that was, that was required of you to for one of your projects, I guess, at, at work. Oh, yeah, yeah. For automated QA, that was all, the automated QA stuff was all doing that, and then it was straight from that into engineering. So. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, okay. So you were mentioning that you are currently work at GitHub. So uh, what, what can you tell us a little bit more about what you do at GitHub and what kind of work you're focusing on? You bet. Um, bulk of my time is spent working on GitHub for Mac and GitHub for Windows. Um, GitHub for Mac typically has been the, the larger of those because that's just where the majority of my experience has been. Um, but we are the desktop team. We are um, a single a single unit, so I work closely with uh, teammates on both platforms, which is pretty great. Um, I'm also really, really interested in diffing algorithms, and I've got a bit of experience there. So I, I, um, I comment on, on that sort of work more so than actually perform the work, but it, it's uh, kind of a, a unique opportunity to, to see more about how that's done, and especially at scale. How, do, how did you get into a, a diffing algorithm perspective? What was uh, what brought you to that aspect of CS? Oh, I'd, I'd been working with synchronization algorithms of one sort or another for actually um, for like nine years now, something like that. Wow. Long time. Yeah. Um, and then working at Black Pixel, I additionally was able to work on Kaleidoscope. I was one of the the team who shipped Kaleidoscope 2, although only I was only part of that for a few weeks. But it was a, a really great experience, and it also gave me a lot of insight into how diffing is performed, um, along with a bunch of pairing sessions with my coworker, Doug Russell, who... Um, has a, a had a, a lot of he shared a lot of my my passion in the subject. Neat, neat. Actually, I, I guess we kind of skipped the the transition all the way to GitHub. Um, so be, before GitHub, you were you were at Black Pixel for a stint. Yeah, that's right. I was there for about a year and a half. Oh, very good. 
So you were mentioning uh, the diffing algorithms and stuff like that. So um, tools we use, uh, Kaleidoscope I use, and then uh, GitHub for Mac I use, as you probably know from the bug reports I file. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I always light up when I get to see your, your name in the, the help inbox. <laughs> That's a, it's a small world after all when you think about it. <laughs> It, it sure can be. Um, the uh, the diffing stuff that's on the web and GitHub, like the they came up with um, images diff on the on the web client. Is that was that part of the work you were involved in, or you're just on a Mac client? Oh no, that that's uh, nothing to do with me. Uh, more is the pity because it's really neat. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I have I think only one contribution to the. Dot com diffing of any sort, and that's a, a small fix to syntax highlighting for Markdown, I think, possibly. Um, m the majority of my work is, has been in GitHub for Mac. And that app, if I'm not mistaken, is one of their reactive Cocoa apps. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. And which is a framework that uh, that's developed by GitHub. Uh, developed partly by a couple of GitHub engineers and partly by a couple of other engineers, and of course anybody who submits a pull request. Right, of course, but like the 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 main the major stakeholders, I think, like GitHub. Yeah, I think we're probably um, the most invested in it. Mm. So that kind of dovetails a little bit more about the uh, in the iOS and Mac community because uh, uh, Reactive Cocoa is uh, something that's been. Um, quite in the news for the last couple of years because of, as people start talking about functional programming. And of course, now we have Swift, which has some of these elements as well. Uh, so can you expand a little bit more about what you're doing in the iOS and Mac community? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I do some work with uh, Reactive Cocoa, mostly co drive-by comments, that sort of thing. I don't uh, actually do a lot of engineering work on it. <laughs> um, but I do a lot of library development in general. Most of my work is open source. Most of my personal work, I should say, is open source. Um, and most of that is published as small libraries. And these days, almost all that is Swift. Um, let's see. Uh, I've also been able to contribute here and there to Carthage, which has been kind of neat. Uh, mm -hmm. Also with Justin Sparsummers, who's uh, also one of the core maintainers of Reactive Cocoa and one of my teammates. Awesome. Are you seeing a pretty good response to Carthage? Yeah, I think so. Um, it seems to appeal to to people who's who are approaching the problem of dependency management the way we are. Like we don't we don't really want to have to change everything about how our project works or about how our dependencies work in order to be able to use them. Um, it's not it's not a perfect solution, of course, but nothing would be. Um, and it's uh, a simple solution in the the capital S simple sense of being like few moving parts, few concepts. Does it aim to to deal with any of the shortfalls, whatever they may be, of CocoaPods? Or is it something coming at it from a different angle altogether? Uh, I mean, we were definitely aware of CocoaPods. Um, we definitely had explored a little bit and we, we didn't really feel that it 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 wasn't a really good match for how we wanted to work um that said you know i think the the best comparison between the two would have to be actually trying them both out for your project um now that that said they definitely take different approaches to the problem so for some folks i think one or the other is going to just be a, a better fit for how they work 
It, it, just to be clear uh, for our listeners that might not know, so uh, Carthage and CocoaPods are dependency managements for Xcode. So if you have multiple projects or multiple libraries that you depend on in your app, you would use uh, either nothing, uh, Carthage, or CocoaPods uh, being one of the the many ways you could you can handle multiple dependencies or get some modules or whichever you want. Uh, but Carthage is special in the sense that it uh, uses uh, frameworks, so built code, and um, it uh, it's very much uh, iOS 8 and uh, Mac OS 10 uh, uh, specific, right? Yeah, uh, 10.9 plus on the Mac and iOS 8 plus on, on mm. iPhone and iPad. And the iOS 8 uh, limitation is because of frameworks. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not opposed to somebody uh, submitting a pull request to support like static frame frameworks on an earlier version, um, but it would—it sounds like it would be a ridiculous amount of work to do, and we're <laughs> not really interested in doing that ourselves. You, you want to be forward-looking, not looking back. Yeah, exactly, and, and that's the thing. Um, with Apple's advice to to maintain support for the current version, we ourselves maintain the current version and one back uh, in GitHub for Mac, but. With, with that being the, the standard advice, there's very little incentive to add support for an uh, iOS version that's going to be obsolete this summer. Hmm. So aside from uh, from the work with Carthage and and uh, and stuff like that, like do, do you actually have other other open source projects that you uh, that you're busy with these days? Yeah. Um. So I've been working for many, many years on a project of mine called Tesseract. Tesseract is not open source, but um, fairly recently I open sourced a couple of libraries which I'm using to build it, oh, uh, one cool. of which is Tesseract Core, and the other is Manifold. Manifold is doing type checking and type checking and type inference and constraint solving and other fun math stuff. Um, and Tesseract Core is sort of like the data types underlying Tesseract, so graphs and edges and nodes and that sort of thing. And uh, so I don't think those are, are terribly interesting for m most people. <laughs> they're fairly specialized to what I'm doing. But um, they also make use of a lot of my other open source projects, which lately has included a lot of micro frameworks. So really tiny libraries that are like one type each or one very small purpose each. Um, so I have, a, I have a variety of them for, for different data types, uh, collections, that sort of thing. Then I also have a couple of slightly more general purpose ones. One of them is Prelude, which is inspired by Haskell's Prelude. Um, it's just you know functional programming basics. And then another would be Madness, which is recursive descent parsing using parser combinators uh, <laughs> rendered as functions in Swift. And believe me, that one pushes the boundaries of Swift. I'm not saying that like as a humble brag or something. I'm just saying Swift didn't know what hit it. <laughs> when it meant Rob Ricks. <laughs> no, well, when it meant this sort of abuse of, of function types anyway, and recursion. Functional programming is a, is a concept that we are, we're going to touch on at NS North. We've got a couple of talks that are going to talk probably at something like that. Uh, uh, Gord Fontenot's talk, for instance. Uh, yeah. But uh, you're coming at it from uh, what angle? Like, it's definitely not from a, a computer science formal angle because that's not the training you've had, or am I mistaken? Well, no, I've definitely not had any, any training actually at all. Um, <laughs> completely autodidactic, but a lot of my interest over the last few years has been in functional programming and um, in general ways to improve the reliability and lower the defect rate 
in programs. I mean, hmm. to put it at a, at a really high level, I would personally be willing to make it harder for people to write programs across the board if it made it much easier for them to write correct programs or much harder for them to write incorrect programs. Right. Um, and I, I, I also think that's not long-term. I don't think that's actually, um, like, I think that's a false dichotomy long-term. I think it's easy now to do stuff that's unsound. I think we're, we're, it's because we're still new at, at software development. My question to, about functional programming, though, is that how easy is it to debug? Because you, you're going to spend a lot more time debugging the code than you are actually writing it. So writing correct code is, of course, a, a perfectly valid goal. But debugging code is a lot more important to me. Absolutely. And, I mean, how easy is it going to be to debug is going to depend on the tooling. With Swift right now, it's not great. Um, Xcode, LLDB are not quite there. Swift the Swift compiler itself has some serious flaws. Um, that said, Apple is clearly really invested in it. I imagine it's just a matter of time. Um, additionally, though, um, I actually think that that, that um, maxim that you're referring to regarding spending most of your time debugging is less true in, in strongly typed languages um, than in others because the type system catches a lot of the sorts of mistakes that you're going to make otherwise. Um, and it's, it's less to do with like, you know, holding your hand and it's more to do with it enabling the compiler to re and crucially you to reason on what the code does, what the code can do, what values could be passed in that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and as an example of what happens when you subvert this, I feel like the you know the exclamation point postfix operator that you can use to um, unwrap an option in Swift. In Swift, yeah, I feel like that's probably um, directly counter to the goal of safety because once it's possible to do that sort of thing at all, people will just do it by default rather than dealing with the case of what happens if it's nil, right. and then you have some very angry-looking code because it's got all these exclamation points. Yes. Um, and it's basically the same safety properties that you have in Objective-C. So I came to functional programming from mostly from the, the standpoint of um, higher-level ways to understand code and higher-level ways to reason on code. Um, but, but I also feel like in a pragmatic sense, being able to read the code functionally, I f find functional code much easier to read than imperative code, which is going through and mutating some state and you don't really know what's, what state when, unless you're actually looking at it in the debugger. Yeah, and that takes a lot of discipline to do correctly. Exactly. It mm -hmm. takes a ton of discipline. Being able to read the program and know, for example, that it can't mutate state. That's not a property of Swift, but it is in some languages. That's a, a huge load off your mind. You don't have to worry about that sort of thing at all. And I, I find that really, um, really compelling. Cool. So um, outside, when you're not coding and you're uh, not looking at a computer screen to figure out the next way to torture the Swift language, uh, can, you, can you tell us a bit more what you're doing uh, to, in the outside world? Well, I, I'm not sure there are any times when I'm not trying to figure out how to abuse Swift, but um, <laughs> I, I also hula hoop. Um, I 
I do a little photography, not a, not a lot. Um, hold, hold on, hold on a second. You, you hula hoop? Yes. You huh. didn't know this about me? I did not. It's in my prolific Twitter stream, so it probably got drowned out. The signal-to-noise <laughs> ratio there is not great. No, actually, it's more like the signal-to-signal -signal stuff, because sometimes I can I can barely make it out, but I know it's important. <laughs> it, it's really unclear what, what part of that is actually signal and what part of that is actually just made up <laughs> on the fly. Yes. I'm going to say 90% of it. Well, what's, what's the achievements with hula hooping? Do you, do you go with multiple hula hoops at one time? The, the length of hula hoopage? I, I mean, definitely some people approach it in that fashion. I've seen uh, some videos on YouTube of some really spectacular, and I, I would say athletes. They're hula hoop athletes <laughs> um, who, frankly, they're, you know, they're every bit as fit as dancers, as any, as any other dancer, I might say. And um, the amount of coordination and skill shown is just unbelievable. I, on the other hand, am doing pretty well if I don't break a window. So <laughs> <laughs> my goal generally is to, to be able to keep hooping. So you, you, you must be really good at that, at that Wii game where you have to hula hoop. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, coordination is not my strong suit in general. And add in, add in the, you know... 16th second latency or whatever ridiculous fraction it is and no i'm lost <laughs> yeah so so i i interrupted you there what was the, what was the next thing that you mentioned there I, I i do a little bit of photography um i have a couple of cats um i read a lot a lot of what i read is cs papers though so that might not be what you're driving at <laughs> ah, it's all good it, it's different it, what 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 uh, what do you like to photograph to photograph what's your kit like and stuff uh, i've got a, a mirrorless camera a little uh fuji film with a, a nice prime lens nice. Um, i really really enjoy shooting with mirrorless i've only had this camera for about nine months but it's is it a micro four thirds um no it's it's not uh fuji film has their own sizing i think okay don't hold me to that no, no problem <laughs> but yeah um I, I really enjoy shooting with this prime lens i, I kind of wish i'd i had a, a telephoto sometimes of course but um i just find it really rewarding for shooting stills especially um i'm not much for for shooting from life um but i i just find it incredibly calming to frame a shot, compose the shot, and take the shot and not be worrying about sticking my face into the camera, which is what I was always doing with my DSLR a few years ago when I had one. Sure. So it's it's just, I don't know, it's been rewarding both from the, the standpoint of like the results, but in like the, the shots, but also very rewarding in terms of the, like framing, framing the moment in your mind. Makes you, makes you get more, much more creative with the, the shot too, I guess, right? Yeah, I can. Um, yeah. It's, you know, I, I've always enjoyed this sort of, those, those lovely shots you see where somebody's just managed to find a perspective that no person would ever be in. Um, and yet it just makes some aspect of the, the composition line up perfectly or something like that. It just highlights something that you would never otherwise have had a chance to see. It's wonderful. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily capture that sort of thing very often in my, my shots, but I, I really admire it. Awesome. Well, make sure you bring your cameras to uh, NS North because we're going to have a photo walk and there's going to be a bunch of opportunities of photographing stuff you wouldn't see normally. Oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Check check out our blog. Um, we have a post there. We're, we're not sure exactly which day. We're, we're thinking the Sunday morning. Um, we'll, we'll try and pack it in there at some point. But, well, that's uh, great. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, it should be lots of fun. And then who, what? Uh, you have two cats, you say, or a cat? Yes, I have two cats. Um, well, I should say I have Pixel, and Kelly, my wife, has Kiwi. Um, oh. Or I guess rather they have us. It's <laughs> rather that way with cats. Nice. Pixel here, I don't know if that will have picked up on the mic, but Pixel just meowed, hello. <laughs> <laughs> she knows her name. Well, that and she knows that if I'm sitting at the desk, then it's a good time to jump on my lap. Oh, yes. Yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for joining us, Rob. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter. <laughs> Definitely Twitter. <laughs> uh, I'm Rob underscore Ricks on Twitter. Perfect. Well, you can learn more about our conference by visiting our website at nsnorth.ca. But tickets are selling out and we'll be closing the ticket sales very soon. Also, be sure to check out our new blog as we frequently post news and announcements there and on our Twitter feed at nsnorth. Thanks for listening to this season of nsnorth 2015. We hope we can see you in Manuelo, Quebec. Dan, how can people get in touch with you? I am at underscore Dan Byers on Twitter and Dan at nsnorth.ca. And I am at Philip C on Twitter. And you can email me at phil at nsnorth.ca. See you soon. Bye.